This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Agri Farley. Today, I'm speaking with a seasoned professional in the field of getting craft spirits launched and distributed. We're going behind the scenes of what it takes to grab a customer's attention and move small labels into bigger market share. As we sometimes must do, this interview is being conducted over Skype. Please excuse any audio abnormalities. With that said, I'd like to welcome my guest, Jamie Zimlin of Zimlin Consulting. Jamie, thanks for joining me today. I am more than happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. I appreciate you finding time for us. Of course. So, Jamie, tell me about your company. What do you do for alcohol brands? Okay. Well, obviously, we talked before the interview started, and I've been in the business for about 24 years. I started as a retailer, uh, worked through college, and moved out to California from Maryland about 16 years ago. And then I started working for a distributor as a merchandiser and then working my way up to a sales rep. I took a position with a smaller supply house that worked with Craft Spirits about two years ago. And about a month ago, I struck out on my own. I think a lot of what I do has to do with getting brands in front of the right people as opposed to getting it in front of anybody. I've done everything from packaging, advising packaging, training sales reps, distributor presentations, team sales with reps and distillers. So I've pretty much been around it all. And I think there are better ways to do it than some of the bigger companies do it, especially with smaller brands. So I kind of struck out on my own thinking, you know, hey, I've worked for big and small, so I can give you the best of both worlds. One thing you, we were talking about before we started recording was that your experience isn't just from 10 years ago, 12 years ago. You're a third generation guy in the industry, right? So you've been around brands for a very long time. You kind of really understand how things move. Yeah. I have family that goes back in this business about 60 years, maybe longer. One of my great uncles, who's about 94 years old, was one of the first street sales reps for Seagram's in the 50s in Baltimore. And I do have an uncle that is still working in New Jersey for Allied Beverages, and he's been there for about 25 years, but been in the business for about 40. So I've been around it. I've seen all the trends. I remember when I came into the business that White Zinfandel was the biggest varietal out there. <laughs> people couldn't get enough of it. And now people look at it and they're like, oh, no, why? So I've seen the entire scope of the industry really just explode over the last two decades. And people are really starting to get into craft spirits because craft beer has been such a big thing. I remember when craft beer first came out and the only two brands were Anchor Steam and Sierra Nevada. And now if you walk into any liquor store in Southern California, and I'm sure in any other location in the United States, where it used to be a 15-door cold box would have you know, 13 or 14 doors of macro brews, as they call them now, which is Bud, Coors, Miller... Now they're down to two doors and everything else is micro. So really just exploded over the last few years. And people are wanting to try different things and experience new items. And they don't want just the same thing all the time anymore. So I've seen that. But I've also seen that some of the smaller companies don't necessarily know how to get to market. They have a great idea. They have a great concept. They have a great product. 
but they don't know anything about penetrating the market. And that's basically where I come in to help. So I think that's a great segue to my next question. Sure. A lot of people think, oh, I'm going to call up a marketing consultant, a brand consultant. They're going to write some copy for me, maybe create a flyer, come up with a great slogan. But what you do is so much more than that. What are some of the things that potential clients may not realize a, a consultant such as yourself can really do for their brand? What is kind of the insight that, that you can give when someone walks in and says, I make the best whiskey in the world and I want to make sure people notice it? I would say to them, here's the questions that I would have. Why do you think that you're making the greatest whiskey in the world? What's the backstory? Where is it from? How do you make it? How long are you aging it? Is it, is it just two years in the barrel just to make it a minimum for a bourbon? Or have you really just put this out there and has, it's been sitting there for five years? Those are all great things. But at the end of the day, what they need to understand is even though that they're, they've got a great brand and a great story, there's a million other people that just have the exact same thing. So really what they have to do is be really conscious of what the public wants. And there are a lot of brands out there that think, you know, we're making a really small batch bourbon and it's awesome and it's the greatest thing. So we're going to go ahead and try and sell it for a hundred bucks. <laughs> um, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm married. I have a teenager uh, going to college next year. I usually don't go into the store and look for a bottle that's a hundred bucks. I look for something that's reasonably priced and it's going to be really good. And I think you have to, as a distiller, you also have to look at it as a consumer and you have to understand that you can have the greatest product in the world, but if you don't have the visibility, you don't have the marketability and you don't have a price that's reasonable for customers to try your product, then it's just going to sit on the shelf and it's going to get ignored. And that's, that's not a good thing. You want people to talk about your brands and really have a kinship to it almost. Jim Beam and Jack Daniels, they've been around forever. And you know what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But at the same time, those guys are aware of these smaller houses. And if they can't duplicate what they're doing, they'll just buy them. <laughs> so the Beam-Suntory thing happened, and I'm sure you're aware of it, where Suntory bought Jim Beam for $16 billion, with a B. And it takes away all the personal touch on a brand but at the same time, most people aren't really going to be affected by that. So you have to have a really good consciousness of what's going on out in the market and what people are asking for. And, and that's kind of the, the deeper insights that you can bring to a client is, 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 you, is you understand the marketplace and you understand how to position a new brand. And that's one of the reasons why people shouldn't be afraid to reach out and call a marketing consultant such as yourself. Absolutely. And the other thing too is this, I consult with a bunch of brands and I'll do just one and I don't do just spirits. I'll do wine, I'll do beer. And I always really make a conscious point not to do anything that conflicts with another client. I was actually approached by a winery two days ago about doing a project that I'm working on with another winery. And I said, you know what, I really can't do that because it would be a conflict of interest, but here's a guy that may be able to help you. I really kind of pride myself on not being that guy where I'll take as much as I can and just give everybody a generic synopsis of what they need to do to go to market. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's the most honest way to do it. And I know there are companies out there, and I won't name any names because I don't want to disparage anyone, but you need somebody that understands your brand and understands what you're trying to do with it and not just a guy that's just trying to pile on a bunch of clients so he can make his, his, his Ferrari payments. 
You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's really where I'm at. You know, that kind of leads me to another question. What makes a consultant and a brand a good fit? You know, what should producers be looking for in a marketing partner? And, and what do you look for? Because, I mean, you, you're concerned about fit also. Is this the right brand for your own abilities? What should people be looking for? I think you should be looking for somebody that's got a good understanding of the market you're trying to break into. I think, you know, with me, I'm kind of unconventional. I'm not your normal suit and tie guy, but now all the craft distillers are pretty much Gen Xers that are growing up and they're tired of their accounting jobs or doing whatever else they're doing. And they basically want to strike out on their own and and do their own thing. So I think personality has to do a lot to do with it and a lot of and being genuine. If I get on the phone with somebody and I'm not really vibing what they're doing, I won't sit there and blow sunshine up them. I'll basically say to them, look, I don't know if I can help you. I'm not really sure what it is that you're looking for. And for me, it's about being having some common sense with your brand. If you've got a bourbon and it's dynamite and you think it's going to be the next Templeton, that's awesome. But if you don't have the right vision to market it and put it together and make sure that it's in a distribution house that's going to pay attention to you, and you just kind of have this pie in the sky idea about this brand, and you don't really have any real direction with it, that's going to be something where I would see if we could put something together as a team first. And if you really disagree with what I'm doing, then no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. So for me, I look for people that are, are like minded, they're not looking to start this huge empire. They want, just want a little piece of their own pie and they want to get out in the market and they want to make a living and they want to have some notoriety within the industry and just be a good, reliable brand that people like. And if you're that person, I'll do whatever I can to help you. I think you highlight a very good point. You know, you're part of a team, the distillery, the producer, they're one piece of the puzzle. You're another piece of the puzzle of building this brand. And like any good team, you guys just have to be able to work together. And if you are arguing with each other, then, hey, guys, you know, there's we don't have to be together. Make sure you can speak with and communicate with your team members effectively. I think that goes into another great subject that one of the questions you were asking me in the preview was more of what I do. Distillers don't have a whole lot of time to talk to their distributors and say, hey, what's going on? And why are my sales not popping or hitting projections that I think they should be? What's going on? Me, if having me as your advocate slash consultant, I have the ability to call up a distributor and go, guys, we sent you a pallet and you're still sen- sitting on it. What's going on? Do we need to go out and work with your reps? Do we need to write an incentive? Do we need to do this? Do we need to do that? I have a really good understanding of that because as a former sales rep, the number one thing that they're looking for is an incentive. You know, Of course, they're going to get paid out on their commission for, for your brand and they're going to get gold for it, but they're not really going to pay attention to it unless you know there's emphasis on it from above. And that's when you really need to find a distributor that's really an advocate for you and for small brands that will really get out there and work your product for you. And one of the things I do is I'll go out and I'll do team sales with sales reps. I'll go out and talk with retailers that I know in the market. You have to cater whatever brand you're working with to the account or the retailer to what they need. If they've got a wall of 200 vodkas, chances are he's probably not going to be looking for one that's 40 bucks. Okay. Yeah, they've seen and heard it all. Vodka, you know, there's 500 vodkas on the market in Southern California. 
and everybody's got at least 50 or 60 of them on their shelf. At the end of the day, they're really looking for the bread and butter and what they can make money with and what's not going to sit on their wall forever. I think that's a good point. You know, a distributor doesn't just want to take one of your, a pallet of, of a producer's vodka and, and sit on it. You know, that's not why they're, they're picking you up as a brand. They want to sell it too. So you kind of have to think about how your brand is going to fit within their entire portfolio. What's a way that a small brand can really find that right distributor? How do you know that this distributor is the one that I should be going with and won't just pick me up and then drop me immediately? Because like you said, small brands can't do things like send the top sales rep to uh, Puerto Rico or something. <laughs> they, exactly. Uh, yeah. That's a fantastic question. And I think getting to the point where you're looking for the right distributor, it's funny that you bring that up because a couple of years ago, I went to the ADI conference in Denver and I sat on a panel with some craft distillers and they asked, how do we get these guys to pay attention to us? And it was funny because there was a, a guy from Young's Market sitting next to me. And he sat there, and I'm not disparaging them in any way, but he sat there and basically just preached about how they care about small brands and they're doing everything they can. And then when the Q&A came around, there was a distiller sitting in the back that raised his hand and said, okay, so if you care so much about my brand, how come I can't get a call back from you guys and there's a pallet of my whiskey sitting in the back of your warehouse? Whoa. And he had no answer. So getting back to that point, I think you really need to go online and research the distributors. 90% of the distributors that are working in the United States, they are going to have their portfolio listed on their website. And if you see some brands that are similar or if you see brands that are crafty and they have a little bit of play in the market, you know that these guys are trying to build the brands. Now, if you go on Southern Wines website and you have to keep scrolling down to find some craft brands... <laughs> then I would say, you know what, if you're really driven and this isn't just a hobby for you, I would go with a second tier distributor that's got a smaller portfolio that can put emphasis on your brands. Well, and I think that's such a good point. Being with the big boys doesn't mean you've made it just because Southern, being the largest in the country, has picked you up. If you're just getting started, yeah, you can get lost very quickly in a portfolio of that size. Don't be afraid about looking at the smaller distributors. Well, yeah, and these guys have a great motto because they can't. If we can't beat you, we'll buy you. And I've seen it happen. I saw it happen with Gallo. They're one of the best companies out there. I, I have to say, because I worked there for so long, they do it right. From soup to nuts, from brand development to launch, to pricing, to packaging, they are just, they're the best. And they didn't even start getting into the spirits game until about 10 years ago when Ernest Gallo passed away. Ernest was never really interested in doing spirits. They were a wine company and they were a vineyard. And Joe, who was his son, who took over, basically said, you know what? We need to compete with the big guys. So yeah, we're going to start making spirits. And they made New Amsterdam gin. They contracted, they bought a, a tequila distillery down in Mexico uh, with Camarena. And New Amsterdam Vodka was one of the last launches I did before I left to go work for the smaller company. And that was the first vodka brand to ever hit a million cases in under a year. Wow. Second only to Grey Goose, which took four years for them to hit a million. Huh. So these guys are well aware of the small distillers. And so is you know a company like LDI or whatever they're called now. Most of those craft brands, they're not even craft anymore. They're all coming out of, you know, they're sourcing the juice and then they're pulling it and putting it in the same spigot as Jim Beam in <laughs> like Indiana. So 
you have to be really cognizant of who you're going with because you're going to get lost mm-hmm. and people, and then they're going to start and they're, they're not going to return your calls. And then you're standing there with a year's worth of product and you're sitting on it and you're like, I'm not seeing any return on my, on my product. What's going on? So that's where I come in and say, look, maybe Southern and Young's, they're not the right guys for you or Gallo or any of the bigger houses that are across the country. Maybe we should go with a smaller, more boutique company that has smaller coverage, but they're really focused on the accounts that are going to be buying your brand. I'd like to kind of switch gears a little bit. Um, In your experience, how does a brand get noticed on the shelf? Is it a question of bottle, label, the things that hang off the necks of bottles? Where do you see the best bang for a buck for a nude producer? Because so many people think, I want to get my own custom bottle. You know, that costs $200,000 right at the point where you've just spent $300,000 on your equipment. Yeah. So you spent a half a million dollars and you don't have a sales force yet to sell it for you. So that means that you know what? No. There are a lot of bottle makers out there that are doing some kind of unique stuff. All you got to do is find them. And I don't necessarily think that having a funky bottle or something new and different, sometimes if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And one of the reasons why, and this is a really silly thing, but it's a gallo thing. If it doesn't fit on the shelf or it's too wide and people can't make the room for it, they're not going to bother. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the, honestly, that's really what it comes down to. And we had a couple of brands at Gallo where the bottle was a little more unique. And the biggest complaint that I got from retailers was this bottle doesn't fit on my shelf, whether it's too tall, whether it's too wide. You know, it doesn't have to be something completely outrageous. It has to be something that obviously you want a bourbon to look like a bottle of bourbon. And Point of sale is great. And a lot of these companies have their own print shops. A lot of these distributors will do point of sale for you if you have someone design it for them and obviously send it to their print shop and basically do everything but print it (laughs) out for them. Because they get so much from the big suppliers. They just have money to burn. Mm -hmm. So if you, I would say packaging, get something that's an innovative, you know, get somebody that's got a creative mind to do your label. And it doesn't necessarily have to cost you a lot of money. But I think you really should concentrate on your pricing being very key. It's so important because, again, circling back to that response I had earlier was, yeah, the greatest bottle of bourbon ever. It could be like Pappy Van Winkle. But the funny thing is, five years ago, nobody cared about Pappy Van Winkle. (laughs) And it's true. Now people can't get enough of it. But be reasonably priced. Make your markup. Make sure that you're taking care of your people and make sure that the product keeps flowing. But it's better to be penny wise than dollar foolish. And I have seen people where they've tried to jack up the price of their product just to make the quick buck and then they disappear. So Hmm. pricing is really important. And going back to the bottling thing, I know that this is a huge, a lot of people are going to laugh at this or go, no way, this is the dumbest thing ever. 50 milliliters. 50 milliliters are so key in this business. Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, metric system question. You mean the really small bottles, like airline bottles? Yeah, exactly. The airplane bottles. And I'll tell you why. It sounds so silly and so ridiculous, but I'm figuring, Zach, you and I are probably around the same age, probably mid-30s. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Good okay. So I'm 40. But you ever walk into a liquor store and you see something new sitting on the counter and it's only like a buck or two bucks or three bucks? Sure. You'd buy it, right? Just to see if it, how it tastes? Absolutely. Well, I'm not really out anything, so why not give it a shot? Yeah, exactly. So versus going on there and looking at a bottle that's 40 bucks, 
wow, that's a really cool bottle. You know what? I don't get paid till Friday. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to worry about it. But if you have a miniature bottle sitting right there and you're willing to try that and just give it a whirl for a couple of bucks. Yeah. yeah, The cost of the bottling is a little pricier and people always have that misconception that they're used to give away and you don't have to give them away. If you give them, if you sell them at a good price, you can put them on the counter and they're going to sell themselves for you. And then that'll lead to the 750, the fifth sales. I don't necessarily think with craft distillers, you need to have too many more sizes than that, unless you're really like Hudson or something like that, where okay. it's really expensive. Right. But With their 300, they're the uh, 375 milliliter guys. Yeah. This is the pint bottles. And and you know what? They're 60 bucks for a pint in LA. And you know, I, I, that may be the greatest whiskey in the world, but they don't have any miniature. So I'm not going to be willing to try <laughs> that, especially with, I, I have a teenager driving my car now. So I don't need, <laughs> I don't need to spend 60 bucks on that. That's such a great point. I would also think being in those small little 50 milliliters buck or two, you know, that is kind of cash flow, right? I mean, that's, that is a way to get more money coming back to you, more money going to the liquor store and it builds your brand recognition among consumers and also among the point of sale people, the, the, the liquor stores themselves. And they see your product is moving for them. Yeah. And I'll tell you why they love miniatures because their markup on that is much higher than a fifth. <laughs> wow. And it's true. It's very true. Usually liquor stores will mark up their 750s to be competitive with chain stores. Now, not in every state, but in California, it's really become the point where liquor stores have become the small size purchase. Most people are going to the grocery store and buying it because they can get it cheaper there, but they can't sell minis in grocery stores. So by doing that, say, for example, say you have a miniature that costs the retailer 59 cents a bottle to bring in. Okay. They're going to sell that bottle for 99 cents. It's a 40% markup. And it's going to sell a hell of a lot faster than a 750 that's sitting on the shelf. Wow. Because most of their customers are coming in and they're buying small sizes because most people drink during the day, you know? (laughs) You know, but yeah. And it's interesting because over the last five or six years in Southern California, and I'm seeing it in a lot of states too now, the days of the liquor store are dying in Southern California. And the reason being is that about six or seven years ago, the grocery chains decided to get into liquor business. And what they're doing is they're making these huge cut rate deals with distributors and suppliers to get these huge name brands in at ridiculously low prices. So for example, if you go to Ralph's, which is Kroger out here, Mm -hmm. and you buy six bottles of any combination of wine or spirits, you get 30% off that bottle, each bottle. And retailers can't afford to even sell it that low because they can't buy it in that low. So they're basically squeezing out the little guy. So the only thing the little guy's got left to sell is flatware and 50 milliliters. So you have to be smart about where you're you're trying to put your product. That's great insight. Uh, thank you for that, Jamie, really. Sure. Oh, absolutely. When would you like to be contacted by a brand? When's the right time for a brand to call you up? You know, should it be right when they're at the idea stage and they think, I'm planning on doing a vodka distillery and I've just started to do my paperwork? Or should they call you when they've got 10,000 bottles of unsold product and it's just not working for them? You know, when's, I mean, obviously that I know that's too late at that point, but. If you have 10,000 cases or bottles of a vodka that's not working for you, I'd call a broker and see if he can unload it for okay. you really fast. <laughs> You know, that's a great question, Zach. Honestly, it really depends. Obviously, I do this for a living. So having them call me for free advice isn't isn't really what I do. But I would say if you've got a plan and you're starting to develop your product, I'm happy to come in and do some smaller projects for you to help you get online 
And then once you have gotten up to the point where you're ready for distribution and you're already having conversations with those distributors, that's when you give me a call and say, okay, Jamie, what do I do next? Okay, these guys, they have me in their warehouse. It's on the way to the warehouse. Now what do I do? Okay. That's when I say, okay, guys, this is what I can do for you. And a lot of these distilleries, these guys are are eating hand to mouth. And you know, we all are. I mean, unless you're the president of Diageo, you're you're not on the golf course at eleven o'clock every day. Right. I think for these smaller companies, I think it would be a good idea instead of trying to put together the sales team right out of the gate where you don't have that kind of money and you're trying to figure out how to pay your investors back or your mom and dad or your uncle who's got a bunch of money and you're trying to get this thing off the ground, you need to do it smart. And that's where I come in. I'm not a guy that's going to charge you $10,000 a month to consult for you because honestly, you don't need that. I would be a guy that says, okay, how many markets are you in? How many distributors do you have? And how much attention do you want for each of these? Most of the time when you're dealing with a distributor, they're going to give you a couple days a month, if that. Oh, wow. Uh, And basically, that's going to give you time to do the presentation at the distributor, uh, write up the pricing for them, and maybe go on maybe two or three days of team sales, if that. Honestly, these guys, they have so many suppliers that are knocking on the door and trying to get them to pay attention that probably two days is asking a lot out of a distributor to give them your sales, give them your their sales reps to go out and team sell with them. So with that being said, you don't need to pay a guy 70 grand a year to be your marketing manager and have a couple of area managers to go out there and, and work the territories for them because you're already sold the product to the distributor. The distributor's job is to sell that product for you, not for you to have your team go out and sell for them. Right. So, And that's a common mistake. I've run into that. Some suppliers assume or distributor houses assume that the supplier is going to go out and do the job for them, but they don't understand that that's what they pay their sales reps for. It's a two-way street with a distributor. <laughs> you you give them the product, you are paying them commission to sell it, and it's their job to go out and make it move. It's not, it's not now, thanks for giving us your product, now please go sell it yourself as well. And I've run into that many times, and it doesn't work. You really need somebody that can monitor your distributors, but you shouldn't have to pay a whole lot of money to do it. Right. So, because quite frankly, what I do most of the day is distributor emails, getting delivery reports, you know, relaying that back to the distiller and letting them know how their product is working, is going. Mm -hmm. Because the distiller doesn't have time to stay on top of their distributor all the time either. You know, who has (laughs) Yeah, he's busy making... I'm making the the best bourbon in the world. I don't have time to uh, (laughs) be calling my distributor too, yeah. And there's a lot of people out there that have realized that most of the people that work at distributor houses, like key market account people, they're not out on the street that often. They're, most of the time, they're sending emails or they're calling retailers or they're talking to sales reps to do it for them. Mm-hmm. So eliminating all those people from your payroll is going to give you a lot more capital to try and get into other markets. So by having a guy like me that's like handling your distributor, that is basically a distributor liaison, it's kind of a newer concept because I think people have this misconception of, I need this guy for this and I need this guy for that. No, you don't. You really don't. You're burning money like it's there's a hole in your pocket. And really what you need is just somebody to get on the distributor and bang on the door and say, hey, guys, how's that incentive going? How much are we doing? All right, we need to step it up. We need to go out and sub out to a a brand ambassador or or a demo girl or something like that. You don't need all this payroll on your roster. It's pointless. 
What's the one mistake you see new brands making that just kind of makes you want to grab them and tell them to just stop doing that? If you could tell people one thing, don't do that, you know, and yet and it's a mistake you see repeated over and over again, what would that one thing be? Hiring a whole staff of people to do one person's job. Okay. That's, <laughs> that sounds very expensive. Yeah, so. it, it is expensive. And you know what? I'm not out to disparage the craft distilling world or the mixology world, which is really big in Los Angeles, and I'm sure it is in New York. But there's like a small community of like hipster people that are really bringing the craft cocktail back. And that's great. At the end of the day, half of these people don't have the decision-making capability. It's usually a buying group. And the other part of that is they're going to go for the cheapest product they can get, or what are you going to give me? Mm-hmm. It's a really small segment of the market and it's growing. But at the same time, you still can't forget those people that are Jack and Coke drinkers and people that drink whiskey out of the bottle. And you have to remember that even though you're a craft distiller, you have to appeal to a much larger demographic, you know, a combination of pricing and, and getting product out into the market but don't hire a bunch of people to go into your into bars and pay them, you know, all this money to go in and spend your money and party because at the end of the day these guys are really just looking for their handout and everybody wants something for free. Would I love somebody to pull up in front of my house with a brand new car? Sure. <laughs> but be smart about how you spend your money. Put the onus on the salespeople because you're the distiller, you're the manufacturer. You've already done your job in selling your product to that distributor. Their job in turn is to sell that product for you. So rely on that. They've already, that's what they do. There's no need for you to put out, you know, now if you're in LA or New York or something like that, and you've got a few bucks to have a brand ambassador out there and put them to work. Don't just send them out there and give them an expense account and say, go and get this account open, do whatever you got to do. Don't do that. It doesn't make any sense. What you need to do is work closely with your distributors because the people that know those accounts the best are the sales reps themselves. Make friends with your sales reps. Go, do you think this product would fit, would work in this account? Don't try and get mass distribution just for the sake of saying, I sold 500 cases this month because next month and the month after, you're not going to sell 500 cases. You have to be smart about where you place it because it doesn't necessarily, it may not work for the same guy across the street. So you have to be, you have to get your brand ambassadors to go out there and be a little bit more of a marketing research tool as well. They can't just go in and and talk to the guy and go, hey man, I got this great brand. I want to get it in here. What do I have to do? Have them go out and beat the street. Go out and look at more than just that one account. Find out where it fits and then put it all together with your sales team and then concentrate on the placements. I think there's a lot of work that can be done before you actually launch the brand. You know, again, that's something that I do as well is you come to me with the brand and you're like, where is this going to fit? Okay, well, you know, I know it'll fit here, here and here, but let's go check out this area and let me go check out this and see, see where it works. Because if you walk into a distributor and say, oh my God, I have this great craft product. It's going to be perfect for mixology bars. They may only have a hundred of those. And anybody will tell you, Mixology bars don't buy by the case. They buy by the bottle. (laughs) They do because they don't want their general manager barking down their neck about why did you buy five cases of this when we only sell three bottles of it a month? You have to make it make sense for your retailers. You have to make it make sense for your distributors to make it make sense for yourself. So you'll get a lot further that way than just trying to unload 500 cases of product and saying, look how many I sold. 
Because at the end of the day, that might be all you sell. <laughs> be, be, be focused on the resale also, yeah. Because yeah, you're, you're, you're going to keep making more product. You want to make sure you keep making those sales over and over again. Yeah, unless you do a limited edition and you're planning on staying in business for about 11 months, right. then sure, go ahead and sell those 500. But okay. <laughs> at the end of the day, you really need to make it make sense for everybody involved. What's one campaign that you've worked on that you're most proud of? You know, what it, now that you've gone solo, you know, looking back on all your industry experience or maybe since going solo, you know, what's what's that one that you're just like, man, I really nailed that campaign? You know, it's it may not be just me. I think it was a collaborative effort, but I have to say that New Amsterdam vodka when I was with Gallo, and you know, it may not be the the hip answer for everybody to hear, <laughs> but New Amsterdam vodka came out of nowhere. It really did. And then it just seemed to be everywhere. It was amazing. Yeah. We touched on it earlier about Ernest and Joe and how they decided to go into the spirits world. They had launched the gin about three years before, the New Amsterdam gin. And back in 07, 08, when they launched that, people looked at me like, Tim, you're out of your mind. A gin? (laughs) Come on, man. We got Seagram's, we got Tanqueray, we need nothing else. That's it. Got it covered. I, I, I get something to put in my tonic, I'm done. Exactly. So we just kept hammering away on the gym and we gave them more competitive pricing and we did billboards and we did this and we did that. And there was a lot of guerrilla marketing that Gallo does that's really kind of cool where it's, they do coming soon banners and they get into those retail accounts and they put those banners up three months before the product is launched so people can start talking about it. That's more innovative, for lack of a better word, uh, than I would expect from such a large brand. That is pretty cool. You have to remember that Gallo is still the only family-owned company in the business. I mean, the Gallos still own and run that day-to-day. So they're still very much a family-oriented company, even though they have a ridiculous amount of employees. But they're also smart about it. They listen to their sales reps and they go, what do you need for the marketplace? And New Amsterdam Vodka, we all kind of... I remember going into the launch in, in the meeting and I'm sitting there going, oh, geez another vodka. There are so many out on the market. And, and I don't want to disparage any brand because you know what? Vodka sells. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the top selling spirit, period. You don't need numbers. You don't need scan forms, any of that. Vodka is number one. And it needs no aging, so you can move it really quickly. Too. Cheapest spirit ever. <laughs> but they said, guys, we, you know, we're putting a huge thing out. We're going to do a lot of press. And sometimes, God love them, they're a little slow in the follow-up with the press. But We went out and pitched it, and we basically said, hey, look, New Amsterdam Vodka, this is the pricing, this is this, this is that, and we knocked it out of the park. We blew through 20,000 cases in Los Angeles in 30 days. Wow. And and that's a lot, even for (laughs) L. It's a ridiculous amount, and it was priced right. People were clamoring for it. We couldn't get it to them fast enough. I don't ever recall a brand that we ever had that I ever was involved in that people just couldn't get enough of. And I was really proud of that because we all kind of sat there as the sales reps and said, "Uh, you know what, this is going to be a real bitch to get out into the market because there's just no room on the shelves. But you know what, if we get it out there and we get it rolling, people are going to just blast it. And they did. And look at it now. It's ridiculous. And you know, I couldn't be more proud of that. That's and, really cool. So yeah, so when you, when you talk about, you know, getting your image right, getting your bottle right, and getting your price right, that's kind of what you're referring to. You know, you you hit the market just right, it was primed, and then bam, you priced it right. And yeah, sure, if you had asked anyone, hey, can I, should I bring another vodka on the market? Everyone would say, no, why would you do that? 
They go, are you out of your mind? Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but you just, it, it all goes back to that pre-launch planning that everyone yeah, really kind of needs you know to what? do. I, yeah. I did have a couple of stray accounts that, that, that basically said, you're out of your mind. You know what, Jamie, <laughs> come back next week. I don't want to talk to you right now. Yeah. And then those same accounts, you know, a couple months later were calling me and saying, dude, I need more. And it's <laughs> like, and, and that's when being a salty old sales rep, like I, like I am going, see, I told you. And, <laughs> you and, 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 and they're like, yeah, you were right. Mm-hmm. And, but it was really cool. And I think to sum it up, it basically, if you're a craft distiller, don't forget the rest of the world. Think a little bit on bigger scale than just that core group. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised to see how many people would jump on the bandwagon with you. That's what I think, because I've been fortunate enough to have experience with a large company and then work with a small company. And, you know, somewhere in the middle, it's going to meet. And that's where you have to go down the middle of the road. And I think that would work for, unless you're making some really oddball stuff, like pomegranate infused brandy or whatever, where you're really looking for a specific market. I think that bourbons and vodkas and whiskeys and gins and your regular spirits that people are consuming on a regular basis is pretty open season. So don't be afraid to reach out to somebody that's a Jack Daniels drinker. Hey, they may try it. They may not like it, but at least you got them to, to talk about it. Totally. So just one more really in-depth question. It's, it's one that I like to ask everyone. What's your favorite cocktail? <laughs> wow, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. hard hitting. That's what. Yeah, you know, it's funny. As many years as I've been in the business, and it's funny now because I'm older. And when I was younger in college and in my 20s, I was all about going out and drinking and having a good time. But a really nice bourbon neat is my favorite drink. It's easy, it's sipping. I don't have to have a chugging contest. <laughs> We're not slamming Jaeger bombs. Yeah. I'm starting to turn into my dad where I could sit there and sip a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, back in the day, it was Captain and Coke, and I could pound about 10 of them, and it was a great time. But right. How does that bottle keep staying here? We haven't drank through the whole thing yet. Yeah, you're slowing down. You know, it's funny. My wife is a huge wine drinker, and she is a very religious kettle and tonic drinker because she's Dutch. And for some reason, she thinks that Kettle One is the greatest vodka ever, which, okay, whatever. All right. But for me, it's all about drinkability. And everybody's palate is different. And I'm not huge into the craft cocktail thing. You know, I enjoy them every once in a while. But I'm really kind of a guy of simple taste. And you're going to find a lot of that in America. America is the land of sugary sweet drinks and drive-through food. And, you know, so you have to, as crafty as you are, you kind of have to make, simplify it a little bit. You know, you don't have to make it too complex. You're not going to France or Italy where they have culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not, not everyone has time for a, uh, to wait 30 minutes for a cocktail that has 15 ingredients in it. People just want to drink something that's simple and tastes really good. It doesn't need anything covering up any imperfections in it, so to speak. And you know what? But there's something to be said about those craft mixology people. They, they really are like chefs and they're amazing. Yeah. But at the same time, you just have to find the balance. I mean, not everybody's going to want that. Not everybody's going to want a Jack and Coke. So you just kind of have to find the middle. And I think when you find that middle, you're going to find success. 
Very cool. Hey, Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Genuinely the last question. Yeah. How can people get in touch with you? What's the best way for someone, if someone wanted to reach out after listening to this and, and speak with you? For I would say call Zach and he'll <laughs> give you my info. Actually, I don't have a website yet. We're just starting out here. But if you want to reach me at Jamie Zimlin, J-A-M-I-E-Z-I-M-L-I-N at gmail.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn, just reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to anybody that's looking to develop a brand and they need some help. And I'm definitely approachable. People don't really want the stuff shirt suit type. Most of my days I'm sitting in my home office in shorts and a t-shirt and working on, on trying to make everybody's brands better. So nothing too intimidating about that setting, right? Anyone can come in and talk to you. Other than I'm six foot four and I'm completely covered in tattoos. I'm a little bit more, <laughs> I'm a little more rock and roll. <laughs> a, a funny story about that though, you know, Gallo being as corporate as they are, I was the first guy they hired at uh, Gallo that had any visible tattoos. And, oh, really? Yeah, especially in Los Angeles. It's, you know, it's pretty corporate. And by the time I left two years ago, it was getting pretty acceptable to walk around and look like you're a rock star. <laughs> it was kind of cool. But, uh, That's you awesome. Know, the culture is changing in the industry. Not everybody has to wear a shirt and tie to go to work every day. Obviously, I'm not going to go to a... Sh- to a distributor meeting in my basketball shorts and, and a baseball jersey. But, you know, I think with this new craft movement, people are, are becoming more relaxed and, and they're not afraid to kind of express themselves a little bit more. So I'm that guy. Very cool. <laughs> so yeah, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. I'm happy to field anything you need. I'm pretty reasonable. I totally understand that most of these craft distillers are on very tight budgets. And I also have an integrity where I don't want to be a guy that's just going to grab everybody as much as I can and just give them the the least amount of attention I can afford. I think when you're looking for a consultant in the marketplace, you, you should ask them what they're working on or who they're working with. So there's no conflict of interest. And then I'll be the first one to tell you if I'm working on something that I think would be a conflict, I don't want to be that guy that says, okay, well, I'll just split my time. I would rather just work with one at a time and you know see which one works best for the team. So I really think that you most people should really just not be afraid to ask the questions when they talk to somebody that's in my position that does what I do. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jamie. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Zach. And feel free to call me anytime if you have any other questions, but I think we covered a good bit of it today. Indeed. Great, man. 